Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. This episode was recorded on the 21st of July, 2020, and my guest was Paul Street, Chief Exec at Lloyds Bank Foundation. Paul is absolutely considered to be one of the best leaders in the sector, and you will get a sense of why that is through the next sort of 50 minutes or so. Um, If I was going to summarise it, I think I would describe him as just a kind and brilliant person, but I guess that you need the corporate sort of spiel on this, which is that he has an enviable career, really, spanning public and voluntary sector organisations, including international development, health, human rights and education. He's been Chief Executive of Diabetes UK, Health Development Agency and the Postgraduate Medical Education and Training Board. So there's a lot of experience that Paul draws on during this chat. We talk about his leadership journey, which starts off with working with his father in the family's greengrocer's business in Scarborough. And he discusses a number of inspirational people who have really influenced his work. We also cover Lloyds Bank Foundation's response to the coronavirus crisis and their new COVID recovery fund. And finally, another key topic is infrastructure organisations. And Paul talks really articulately about the sort of new, I guess, new approach to leadership of them and our collective ability as a sector to influence government. I hope that you enjoy the chat. Please do feel free to share it. And you can find me on Twitter at Beth Crackles. Today, I'm joined by Paul Street, who is Chief Executive at Lloyds Bank Foundation. Hello, Paul. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Beth. So we're going to start off with a little bit about getting to know you and your background. You've got a really fascinating background spanning voluntary and public sector, and you've led a number of organisations, predominantly in the health sector. But do you want to give us a bit more of a flavour about you and your previous roles and what you're doing at the moment? Previous roles, well, I'm from Yorkshire. That seems important to me. But uh, yeah, as you say, Beth, I've worked in the public and the voluntary sector. But I began my work in the public sector, actually. I began my work as a social worker. Why don't we talk about that later? And that's quite formative, actually, in some respects. Mm. But I've kind of, I've looked for things that I think are interesting. So I've run, the biggest organisation I've ever run is Diabetes UK, or I've worked across the NHS and I've worked in the Department of Health. So I've done kind of various different leadership roles. But the residing thing that's kind of attracted me is I really... I'm interested in what this organization is doing or what this job is about. And uh, so, and I think I can make a difference. And uh, I, I guess I'd always wanted at some point to be a chief exec. I used to have this mantra that I was sick of working for morons and decided I wanted to be the moron. You know, I want to be able to look <laughs> myself in the face and say, if there's a problem in this organization, look in the mirror, which is what you do as a chief exec. You know, if yeah. it doesn't work, it's your fault. You're completely accountable for it. I like that. And I first became a chief exec just over, God, 1998, actually, first chief exec role at uh, Diabetes UK, which was interesting in itself. But, you know, before that, I'd worked in development, I'd worked in amnesty, and I'd worked, as I say, as a social worker. And I used to run my dad's shop. So, you know, I was in leadership even at the age of 15 when my parents used to go to Germany. I used to run a green grocery shop in Scarborough. So Amazing. it's a leadership journey that's a long one. And I really like being chief exec. I think it is that accountability thing. You know, the book does stop with you you know, increasingly I become increasingly hopeless at operational detail. So I like the kind of big strategic thinking that goes with these kinds of roles. So you mentioned two things there. I imagine that listeners will want to hear about some of the big roles that you've done, but I actually want to go back to the greengrocer's shop (laughs) and the social worker role as well. Like what did you, what did you learn from those things in terms of like, how have they influenced your leadership? I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Um, you know, you can hop back to parents and you do perhaps as you get older and you lose your parents. My, both my parents are dead now. And uh, it's funny, actually. My father, you know, funny way, he ran a green grocery shop in Scarborough. It was a successful business at a time when Scarborough was booming. It was a conference trade. There was a couple of things he was really good at. He was incredibly good with his customers. He was very customer focused. He would know all their names. He'd know what they wanted. He'd, he'd, be, he'd be charming and wonderfully charming. He was really good with his staff. Um, <laughs> my mother used to say, all your niceness comes out in your customs and your staff has none left for us. So there's something <laughs> off that. But, you know, the recipe leaders, it was also somebody with great integrity. He, you know, he traded. He used to go, I used to drive to Hull with him 
at four o'clock in the morning to go and buy strawberries in the summer, as you do if you're a greengrocer. You know, when Hull Market was thriving, it was a great place, actually. And you walk around that market banter, which is kind of a, a proper market, not like Borough Market, which is next to our office, you know, with full of people talking to each other and teasing each other and, you know, trading and, and the difference between 6p on a box or 4p on a box. And people used to call him Nev. His name was George Neville, but he used to call him Nev. And I thought, gosh, you know, he was a real character. He was a real character. And I think you draw from that, don't you? You learn yeah. about this is a way to operate. He worked really hard. He worked, you know, in those days, he worked almost seven days a week because we did the hotel trade. So we never had holidays and stuff. But mm-hmm. he gave us the opportunity, give me the opportunity in particular, to look after it. He used to go away. He used to go caravanning or something with the, with, uh, the rest of my family. And I didn't go. And I'd look after the shop. And it was uh, interesting, actually, being in that position, you know, uh, knocking around the vans in Scarborough. Scratching the vans in Scarborough, taking the strawberries to the Royal Hotel at you know six o'clock on a Sunday morning because they'd forgotten they needed them, or driving to Holland picking up some pineapples that they wanted. All that stuff's really formative, actually, and it's it's a great opportunity and you know something that you have if you have self-employed parents who run a business and you mm. can do some work with them, you have that opportunity, you know. And I remember I bought um, one of my summers, I bought for thirty-nine pounds my first Hitachi cassette radio. Fantastic. <laughs> it's got you know kind of like a brick now when you look at it but it was like heaven you know i'd got this yeah. cassette recorder i remember 39 quid you mean jesus you know, buy 39 quid now um he attached a cassette recorder with a microphone you just pull out you know yeah. around. <laughs> weird <laughs> did you make make a load of mixtapes Oh God, mixtape! Nobody knew what mixtapes were. You know, this is. I mean, I, you know, it's not oh, a right. long time ago. <laughs> what was a mixtape? Nobody would have known. <laughs> I don't know what I did with the recorder, actually, but you know, it's just a lot of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, that's just fascinating, really. I guess it's those interpersonal skills, isn't it, and the ability to relate with people and just get on and chat with people, whoever they are. Well, in like the end, you know, if you're going to be a reasonable chief executive, you have to be able to. You know, people tell me I'm not great at small talk in the office, and I think that might be true to some extent. But you have to relate to people as individuals and make yeah. them feel cared about um, yeah. and, and be interested in them and be curious. You know, a lot of my job's about curiosity. I think good mm-hmm. chief execs are very, very curious and questioning uh, and all of those things I picked up, you know, in some ways from my dad with his knowledge of his customers and his knowledge of the people he traded with in Hull, buying yeah. boxes of bananas and strawberries and potatoes and all that stuff. Probably know quite a lot about fruit and veg then as well. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you if you live and work in a fruit and veg shop, you get all the rubbish because you know all the good stuff goes to the yeah. all, the stuff, all the stuff that's going off can bend the back, you know. But really, this because it's going to go off, and I'm going to throw it out and lose money. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about being a social worker. Yeah, I came to London, did a geography degree at UCL, and um, I became a social worker at the age of 21 in an era when you didn't need to be qualified. You know, bizarrely, the, the best qualifications I had were going for Scarborough a geography degree to become a social worker with very damaged kids. And I worked for Westminster Council, I worked for Kensington and Chelsea with some really I, terrible term at the, t- at the time they were called maladjusted children. Mm. Um, and it's a terrible term actually. But there were kids from deeply disadvantaged backgrounds, particularly from African-Caribbean backgrounds in the area and Irish backgrounds. And on somewhere called the Mozart Estate, which is still infamous for crime. In that area, it was glue sniffing. It was an architect's dream, actually. They built a children's home. It's a bit of a kind of Hansel and Gretel idea. Children's home in the middle of a, one of the roughest housing estates in West London. And it just became a war zone because we were the epitome of the council. Had a flat mm-hmm. roof, which was a gift. So kids used to climb on the roof. It was a bit like being in a kind of, um, a bit like, you know, these films when you get sort of New York closed and it's become completely anarchic. It was a bit, bit, bit like that. You know, and I was kind of 19, or 21, I guess I must have been when I was doing that work. But I worked with some quite remarkable kids and some quite remarkable staff actually and I met my wife there so you know all good things um yeah so it was a uh, formative you know and one of the things you asked me and I'll come to you one of the questions you said well, you, I might ask you about who the most important people and I was thinking about that quite a lot and actually three of the most important people that have really affected me deeply actually with three people I met who were children in that children in two children's homes I worked in who are a kind of I think uh microcosm of what it means to be the accident of birth that we all have you know where we're born I talked mm. about my background how these things are just coincidences and I worked with a, a girl called Diane who was killed in a knife in a in a, in a knife attack uh, on on Harrow Road uh, at the age of 18 but she was amazingly worldly wise and I learned a great deal from her worked with a kid 
I'll call him Justin, uh, and he was from Elaborate Grove, and he was from Caribbean, his Jamaican background, and uh, he, I mean, he he will have ended up in a life of crime, but he he was an amazing amazing kid in lots of ways too. He was um, then I was working in Henley on Thames because Kenneth Chelsea built this children's home in Henley on Thames. They thought it'd be a good place to build children's home for some bizarre reason, as a therapeutic community, as they called it, and. Justin came out there and he lived there and he was the only black kid in Henley on Thames, as you can kind of imagine. Henley on Thames isn't notorious for its its blackness. Mm. And uh, he was taken out of his home, out of the home, because he stole, it's paradoxical actually, he stole a silver champagne bucket from a neighbor, nearby house. It's kind of what the hell is a black kid from Labrick Grove going to do with a silver champagne <laughs> bucket? Probably set it for a fiver in the market. But, you know, it, it was reported to the police. Uh, he was taken away from the home. I remember as the social worker writing to the director of social services saying, this is outrageous. This is a kid we should have supported through thick and thin. You put him in an environment where he was going to offend. Hey, Presto, he offended. This kid was actually beginning to succeed in some things. It was the kind of stereotype of the West Indian kid, actually. He'd become a great runner. Um, he was really succeeding at school. So he was removed. Another kid who I worked there called, uh, again, let's call him John, um, who, and a tragic tragic case actually he was a child whose parents were gambling addicts uh he became a rent boy uh he used to run away and when he used to run away he used to go to piccadilly and you'd find him there on the railings literally as a rent boy in that area he was 16 spotty acne kid red hair um and he was basically being sexually abused and i'd find him with these men who actually that was the only way he could get any kind of expression of affection and i read about him about 30 years later and he himself had become a child abuser and it's this tragic cycle. And when I took this job at the foundation, it made me really reflective of that because I thought, actually, fundamentally, a lot of the people we're reaching are in a deep, deep position of disadvantage through no fault of their own, mm. the birth. And yet, so much of what they are able to do and their opportunities they may have are predetermined at that very young age. These are teenagers whose the die is cast for all three of those kids. The die was cast to the extent, in Diane's case, she died. Uh, uh, I'm sure the other two, I know that uh, the other two are, are in prison in, in some way or have been in and out of prison as a consequence of, you know, is it the failure of the system? Partly it is our failure to properly support them, but, but actually, in a sense, at its best, the foundation is trying to reach people who are deeply disadvantaged through no fault of their own, whether they're from Britain or they're a refugee who comes from Syria, you know, who's left Syria or Turkey or... Eritrea or wherever they might come through through political persecution. So I think they're interesting how careers, my career has gone in cycles. And sometimes the things that I thought I would learn from previous jobs has really surprised me. Uh, the other thing I learned when I came to the foundation was that actually SightSavers was really a grant-making organization. I never thought it was a grant-making organization. Mm. A lot of the skills and things that SightSavers did in the way it worked in Africa are absolutely re re relevant to the types of organizations that people we support through the work at the foundation in a completely different context because they're not in Ghana or Ethiopia or South Asia or, or, or Malaysia. They're in, you know, Whitehaven and Blackpool and, you know, yeah. uh, deepest, dark, darkest Cornwall. So yeah. fascinating, actually, how you take things from your career that you would never have expected. But you say, yeah, I've been here before in a very different context. And I can apply and help me help me understand what's happening here because of something that I experienced early on. So I feel enormously fortunate that I had that three years. You know, I could have from UCL gone on the milk round and become an accountant, um, mm. and I didn't. I became a social worker and a lot by myself, and actually used that as a vehicle into development. Mm. The three stories that you've just told us are individually really quite harrowing, aren't they? Mm. I guess there are two questions really. Did you know at that point that you wanted to go on to lead an organisation? Did it give you that ambition to say, right, I want to, I want to lead something. I want to, I want to be the change, if you like. And another question, kind of linked to that, is like, how do you keep your optimism about society, about human nature, when you see things like that on a daily basis? You know, did I know when I was. 24 or when I left social work I wanted to be some sort of leader I'm not sure I did I was ambitious I did think about staying in social services so I guess I could have done it taken a kind of public sector career route it's a kind of classic route in you know become a regional manager and you know manage teams and all that kind of stuff but I'd always been really interested in overseas development um, I did, did geography degree as I said but I did a lot of development economics which was a particular interest of mine so I actually used the money and my wife helped me with this you know I saved money while I was 
that I lived in as a social worker and saved enough money to do a master's in agricultural economics, which was the route at Reading, which is the route into FC's development, to pursue what was actually a real interest of mine. And that was partly political, to be honest, you know. I suppose in my early 20s, you might call me a Marxist. I used to read a lot of um, uh, communist development theory, Furtado, a lot of Latin America development theory, actually, about underdevelopment, which is very recent today around the conversations around race, when I think about it. Mm. Um, So I wanted to do development and uh, wanted to work overseas. and, And I did that for a period of about eight, nine years. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> was I thinking I wanted to be chief exec then? No, I wasn't. I mean, it wasn't something that's always been in my mind. I guess, where do you get your optimism from? Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? It is from people. I've worked with some really extraordinary people, really, really extraordinary people. And every job I've done, I've learned enormously from people I've worked with. You know, now it's members of my board. Previously, it was chief execs that I admired, or frankly, chief execs that I despised. I still learn from them. You learn as much from yeah. bad leaders as you yeah, do from quite. good leaders. You know, God, I'm sure as hell not going to do that. You know, it's like parents. You know, I'm not going to do that. You just make different mistakes. That's what yeah. you do. Yeah. Um, so I could think about people who were, you know, I could think of a couple of leaders who I worked with, the, the, the heads of those homes I worked with as a social worker. They had a profound impact on me. The thinking then, my boss at site service who's visually impaired you know stereotype there isn't interesting actually but doctors I worked with um and was that a journey to become a leader well you know in a sense I'm a jack of all trades the thing about geography degrees is you're kind of you're okay at lots of things you're not fantastic at anything and I'm the kind of the ultimate geographer I'm multidisciplinary good chief execs are okay at a lot of stuff they're not they may not be outstanding about anything but they're okay at a lot of stuff and they know how to bring it all together in one place that's what it's all about really yeah bringing it all together in one place talking to people engaging them and that's, those are good chief exec skills and things that I really enjoy doing. Um, and the optimism for me comes from those people, people who I've met who are doing extraordinary things, people who are amazingly innovative. The sector is full of fantastically innovative people. And I work with doctors you know, in the sight savers who are extraordinary. You know, we pioneered paramedic cataract surgery in Africa. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people in Africa who can see as a consequence of that. We pioneered the Daphne program at Dibes UK with, again, doctors, and a lot of doctors, love working with imaginative doctors. They are the brightest of people, sometimes the narrowest of people, but sometimes the most innovative of people. When I think about the Daphne program, that is now, it fundamentally changed the way we educate and train people into their diabetes. That transforms the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in Britain with a very small investment. And as a chief exec, you're privileged to be able to spot those things, to pinpoint mm-hmm where a relatively small investment can make a difference and support people to do extraordinary things. The foundation's all about that. I um, go out all the time and I meet extraordinary people. And those extraordinary people are both the people who come through the door of these charities and the people who lead them. You know, typically, the organizations we support are run by people who believe they can make a difference and do make a difference. Working in their own localities, they set up the organizations that they run or they came in because they had a child or a partner who experienced the issue they're trying to deal with. And that's their motivation. I can make a difference to somebody else. And they do. And they make a huge difference to people's lives in a very concentrated way by recognizing that, like these children, three children I met, it isn't completely hopeless. With the right kind of support, there could be a different future for them. But it's just understanding them as creatures of circumstance in many respects mm. and then providing the right kind of support. And some people get that and many don't. And fall down on the heap, as 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 I suspect. Oh, well, we know one of them did, and the other two, I suspect, will do too. Mm. So you know, you have to be optimistic because there is a, an amazing ability of people to care about in a really compassionate, but not a not a naive way. Because it's not it's not empathy. It is empathy, but empathy is a route to being actually supportive in quite a structured and sometimes quite a tough way to some of these people who are facing really difficult lives, but with the right kind of support can begin to begin to lead, you know, to begin to have opportunities they might have thought they wouldn't otherwise have had. And fundamentally, our work at the foundation is about supporting people who are optimistic and feel able to make that difference. And we see it every day in the work we do. I really like what you've just said about having empathy, but in a structured way, like providing the support in a structured way. Mm. I think that speaks to a few things that have come up a number of times in, in my career around of the passion do you need to be passionate about the cause or do you need the skills to actually do the work and there are different different schools of thoughts about that depending on which organization you're working in um is my experience I've, I've, i mean i nobody's ever called me this but i sometimes call myself this i call myself a promiscuous chief executive because i've kind of you know i i've worked on lots of different causes and for me 
I need to get motivated about the cause. I need to believe it's worth doing and I need to believe it can make a difference. But, you know, unlike many of the chief execs of char- small charities we, we fund, you know, I haven't said, well, I'm going to make alcohol addiction my, my thing or I'm going to work in mental health. I've worked on a range of different issues. And the commonality about them is they're things I'm interested in and things that I could believe I made a difference in, but I'm not a specialist. You know, mm-hmm. And some people are specialists, and that's fantastic. You know, they've done, they spent all their career working for thirty years as a social worker or as a kind of addiction specialist, and that's really admirable. But that's not me. Yeah. My job, I think, is, and I think, good chief execs. I mean, in a sense, I think it's problematic in larger organisations if chief execs become the specialist. My job yeah. is to support the specialists to do their job well and to create an environment that can enable them to do their job well and do what they do well, not to second guess them all the time. Mm. So, yeah, I've worked, you know, I've worked from a real range of issues from postgraduate medical education, which is going to be clunky, isn't it? But possibly one of the most important jobs I've done to kind of diabetes to overseas development. And here I'm now, you know, supporting small charities through the work of the Lloyds Foundation. Mm. So let's move on and talk about uh, Lloyds Bank Foundation. Should we talk about the foundation's response to the crisis? Like organisations, we've had to respond both in how we operate ourselves and in and what we do. I mean, we're fortunate in that we're not a massive staff group. There's about 50 of us and half of them don't work remotely anyway. So, you know, the, the switch, switch online was really easy for some staff mm-hmm. and some staff have really enjoyed it. Others, it's been much more problematic. But I mean, we've had to go online and, and shift services online and shift support online, um, like all organisations have done. And, you know, I think we've done that successfully as we could. I don't think it's perfect. Uh, I, I yearn for human contact uh, again, and I hope we'll get that back, you know, that ability to the set piece that chief execs do. Uh, you can't do it on a Zoom call. It doesn't have the same cachet as, you know, creating an atmosphere in a room and doing the sort mm. of stuff you do and soft, the soft skills that you have as chief exec in acquiring knowledge. So we've done that. But um, we've also had to really rethink uh, what we were doing, partly because, obviously, I mean, we did a lot, as all organisations should have done, is a lot of rapid environmental scanning. But one of the interesting about this crisis is, you know, I mean, you know, agile is a bit overused, but it has really required an agile approach to strategy, a very flexible approach to strategy, because you've, you've never been able to see what's coming through the door. You kind of can predict to an extent where you think we might be in a month or two months. You know, you, you, I still can't predict now where we're going to be in a year's time. I mean, good strategies rely on some flexibility. They are, they, they're, a, they're tram lines within which to work. They're not a straitjacket, and the tram lines have had to be quite wide in this context. But we've had to adapt a lot of what we've done. So... We've um, adapted our package of support to organisations. We do a lot of organisation development support. We've repositioned that. We've done a lot online. We've done additional work around peer support. We've done additional additional work on areas like people thinking about income generation and some of the issues that have arisen. We've flexed our grant making. So we launched a programme. We had a programme that we were about to launch just before lockdown. We continued with that. But instead of giving three-year funding, we gave one-year funding, which was tricky for us, partly because we thought that we didn't know what, how this was going to shake out. We think there will be a shakeout in the sector. There's no point in just giving a three-year grant to an organization, frankly, that might not be there in three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but partly because, frankly, we were also considered about our own income. Um, you know, what, what would be the impact of our own income? Because we are, we have, we are funded by, but independent of the bank. We have a nine-year rolling fund, funding deal, but we are, con- we are reliant on bank income. So we were conscious of that. That was an initial response. We then looked at the 600 plus organisations we supported and said, well, actually, most of them have COVID-related costs. And we we launched what we called, uh, well, they were adaptation grants, really. We, we essentially said, can you apply to us for for grants between five and £15,000 to meet your direct costs of responding to COVID? And it's quite humbling what people have asked us for. You know, this is quite recently. We're about to give the yeas or nays on this. We had a pot of two million quid. We had bids that are fundable for 4.9 million. It was really Mm. simple stuff. It was organizations wanting Zoom accounts. It was organizations wanting hand sanitizer, perfect screens that begin to come on. So they can either do more online or they can begin to have some face-to-face contact with clients again, which is a pretty Mm. key for a lot of the organizations we support. So we're about to make announcements on that. We're really pleased we've got, we think we've got a little bit more funding from two other funding sources. That will mean we can fund more than the two. We've made our own pot about two and a half million. We think we're going to have just over three, three and a half, somewhere around there in total. So we can meet most of those needs. I mean, it's interesting that sort of, we, they could have all applied for 15,000. They didn't. 
they applied for what they needed. So if they wanted £7,322, they applied for £7,322. They didn't round it up. Yeah, say, I want 10, I want 15, as, you know, probably, frankly, I would have done in their shoes. They applied for exactly what they wanted and they itemized it all, you know, 82 bottles of sanitizer at £3.52 each on Amazon. Here's the link, you know. We wouldn't ask for that kind of stuff, but they did that. And it's the kind of, I don't know, it's the sector we play into that they would do that. And one of the common things that we are recognizing is that, uh, I mean, you talked about it in one of your earlier podcasts, how this is fu- the fundamental impact on this is that we can't do face-to-face stuff properly. We can't do group stuff properly. But if you're a charity who's not just your, how you raise your money is based on face-to-face or group work, effectively, meetings, events, actually your service model is based on that too. Everything that you were doing six months ago has to be changed. And we as a funder need to think about how we support people to make that change. So we're about to fund what we call the COVID cohort what we will call a COVID call for, of about 140 organizations that will be focused on, and we will support them around this because we want to learn from it too. It's very reciprocal on thinking through how we rethink business and service models for a post-COVID health emergency world. And that is really focused on learning, rapid learning, rapid development, so that we can think about how we position ourselves from 22 onwards to best support organizations to make these kinds of changes. Because what is, what is becoming true about this crisis is it's a crisis with a very long tail. Uh, and for the sector, it's going to have a very long tail. You know, we're not going to be, I mean, God knows what, what new normal looks like. Who would, who would care to speculate? But even if we get to a point where we have a vaccine, you know, the financial issues uh, that are in the economy and that will deeply affect all the people that we are re- trying to reach through our work are going to be with us for several years to come. Mm-hmm. So that that for us is a really important piece of work. Uh, and uh, I mean, we might talk a little bit about it as we go on, but alongside this, we've had the kind of outpour around Black Lives Matter. And that's been made me really thoughtful, actually. It made us very thoughtful as an organisation. And one of the things we're going to do is ring fence 25%, at least 25% of those grants to black-led organizations. Partly looking at our own data and asking ourselves whether we were doing enough and uh, frankly saying, well, no, we're not. And also because I think one of the issues with a lot of the debate around equity, diversity, inclusion is there's a lot of language, a lot of fine statements in the end, what Mm. matters is what you do. So that will challenge us in terms of our processes and our thinking, but we think really important in future learning because yeah, if there's one good thing that would come out of this, I would have thought as a nation we'd be more reflective on race and think about the impact of, you know, we talked about circumstance and I talked about, I think I called him Justin, the Afro-Caribbean kid from Labrook Grove and the opportunity mm-hmm. and life chances he would have had relative to many of us. Well, you know, this is being writ large, isn't it, both in terms of health and economic impact of COVID. And, uh, you know, that will be a really key part of what we do as we move forward with this new programme. Mm. I mean, so much to unpick from what you've just described there I guess funders have responded in different ways haven't they I think it's really interesting what you said about choosing to give one-year grants as opposed to three years because I guess from a fundraising perspective or working with organizations that are seeking funding they're like oh my god but we need the multi-year grants to, to keep going but I completely understand where you're coming from like internally how did you get to that point from working with your colleagues and volunteers, I imagine your trustee board in that respect. Like what sort of things were you considering and how did you go about that process to get to that point? I mean, that one year thing was a real dilemma for us because we've singled ourselves out as a long-term funder. You know, mm. actually we, we had been funding for up to six years with three year break, a break point. And, you know, it's our preferred model and it's where I'd hope we will get back to. And with this new program I talked about earlier, we are going to, that will be two-year funding, and we're looking at some match funding if we get it to make it longer than that, potentially. So we are moving back to a longer-term funding model. But I think the dilemma was, is this driven by our concerns about our own potential income, or is it driven by a genuine understanding that actually these organizations, um, you know, some of them may not be there in a year's time or two years' time. But partly, you know, in truth, it was a combination of both those things, but partly it was also the fact that for us with a finite pot, if we fund for three years, then, you know, as all funders do, we have to set aside three years budget. So if we give you a £100,000 grant, we set aside £100,000 of us a grant that we can't give it. If we give you a £33,000 grant, which is what we did in this case for a year, we can fund three times as many organisations. So 
it was partly about reach. And one of the things that we think we do uniquely, and as a funder, we've spent a lot of time and effort and, and, and energy and money, frankly, investing in what we call our enhanced model, which is our organization development work. Um, thinking, well, we've got something we can offer to organizations that is quite unique and quite important at this time to help them rethink some of their operating models uh, and how they work and bring together peer support and build on that kind of five, six years of investment. So we've been able to offer that to a much wider range of organizations. We hear clock ticking now, I've got some clocks. Um, anyway, so um, there we go. So yeah, it was um, so it's a series of reasons why, but it was quite a challenging thing for us to do and we would like to get back to longer term think longer term funding we do have to look at what the impact on our income will be because the uh, you know the bank is not immune to the uk economy it's directly related to the uk economy the uk mm. economy is hit the bank will be hit and that will affect our income down the line and we don't know that the bank very i mean fantastically have said to us for next year they will give us exactly the same money as they did this year there's been no obligation to do that because we have a contractual agreement with them about what they give us um, mm. but we know what our income is going to be for 2021 which gives a degree of surety but we don't know our income for 22 23 and funders, you know, there is we, we don't do anybody a service if we throw all our eggs in this basket and find that at the end of 2021, we don't have any eggs left, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have to take this, and it's back to HR thinking, we're to take this step by step. We will make some right moves. We'll make some wrong moves. We have to do what we think is the right thing to do at that time and create the rationale for that. But sometimes it will be wrong. But what I would like us to do is get back to that longer term thinking because you're right. I mean, it's also a dance, you know. Uh, the, the problem with three with year by year funding is you get this annual dance. Everybody has to be nice to you for a year because they think they have to reapply in a year's time. They can't tell you what they really think. They can't tell you the place is going down the tubes because they're terrified because they think they're not going to get a grant from in a year's time. So you know, and all that effort on our side and assessment, you know, we've shifted our staff away from assessment to a relationship because you know we spend all our time assessing grants. We don't build a relationship with people. So, you know, it was hard choice that, and I do hope we can go back to longer-term grants down the line. Interesting. Thank you. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about the, the sort of broader voluntary and community sector, and particularly around influencing government. Essentially, where I want to get to is, how effective do you think that we are as a sector in influencing government? As a sort of outsider, if you like, as just somebody in the sector not engaged in that work, I see a lot of chat about, what is going on but I think what I don't have a grasp of is ultimately what we think is possible to achieve as a sector and where we're sort of benchmarking there. I think there's a legacy of the past that we suffered from at this point. Uh, I think Carl and Vicky, Jane at Navca, Karen at uh, CFG, um, Deborah of course at DSC and others, uh, Carol Mack including at ACF have done a good job in making the case to government but you don't make the case in a crisis you make the case based on a relationship you've had for years and understanding that you've had for years and uh i don't think we were in the right place when the crisis started and you know i think we've done they have done a really good job in terms of trying to make the case now and the sunat package was interesting and it's interesting both in terms of the amount but also the tone of it particularly his focus on small local organizations actually which mm. we pleased with given our focus but you know, then we've got cancer research laying off thousands of people, cutting 150 million out of research. I mean, that can't be a good thing. So you could never say, you know, and, and Rishi Sunak is right, he can't rescue everybody, whether that's the charitable sector or the private sector. But actually, some big casualties in big organizations would be some bit that's significant, you know, not just in terms of UK economy, but in terms of future cancer outcomes. So big charities are really suffering. And you'd have to conclude that. You know, we haven't really been able to make the case as well as we should have done. You know, the arts package that was announced was twice the size of the package for the voluntary sector. So we care more about the arts. I mean, and, and you know, I, I'm a great fan of the arts myself. Uh, and arts will reach poor communities as well. But, you know, arts is very, it's a metropolitan agenda, isn't it, in many respects. It's uh, the South Bank. It's the Royal Opera House. It's the, the kind of theatre land. The stuff, frankly, that MPs do in their spare time. That's absolutely resonated to the point though that they've had twice the size of the package of the voluntary sector, which is about domestic abuse charities in Whitehaven and mental health charities in Sheffield, you know, yeah. lots of unglamorous stuff. Uh, but also stuff like Cancer Research UK, these are blue chip charities which are which are deeply affected by this. But I don't blame the current leadership around that. I blame the past leadership around that. I think we have not had the kind of relationship with government that we needed to have. 
um, at the right places. You know, we focused on DCMS and the offices of a society. Great to have Diana Barron there. She's fantastic. She gets the sector. But in the end, I mean, I've been a civil servant. DCMS is the bottom of a long pecking order in Whitehall. And the top of that is, is Treasury. You know, unless you're hitting Treasury and Home Office, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about past leadership in the sector. It's also, frankly, about a charity commission that has appeared not to love us and often be deeply critical of us. And, you know, we, we've got some capability of ourselves, the safeguarding issues, the kids' company outfall, all of that stuff. But there has been a narrative, I think, around the sector for quite a long time that's been substantively quite negative. And, you know, there is something about organisations needing to, I mean, I talk about it myself, you have to make your own narrative, I mean, you're in fundraising, you know, you have to manage your own narrative, not let the media get control of the narrative. And mm. for the last decade, the, 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 neg- the, 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 the uh, narrative around charity has been substantively a negative one. Poor governance, you know, kids' company, uh, safeguarding, Oxfam, Save the Children, all of these significant issues, fundraising, chief exec salaries, you know, that's been the narrative around the sector. Uh, so, you know, whereas the CBI, the TUC have been there frequently and are still there frequently being asked to comment on things, we are not. We're asked to comment mm-hmm. on bits related to our sector. Now, you know, maybe it's naive to think we could ever be like the TUC or the CBI, but this is a conservative government. I mean, the TUC, Francis Grady, has had a lot of profile. Mm-hmm. This is not a government, or, a government or media that particularly likes the trade union movement. They do would like the CBI, and there's no doubt that Caroline Fairbairn's been, you know, or, or Josh Harding, who's a deputy, has been, he was on the select committee with me, we, we spoke. But we haven't been there, and I, as insignificant we would be, and we're not been on the major debates, we've been on the marginal debates. And if we've got a government which is interested in a red wall that's become blue and levelling up, civil society is pretty key to that. You know, Danny Kruger's just been appointed by Boris Johnson to do some work around that. And, you know, but he's not, He's not particularly well resourced. We'll see. I mean, he gets the sector, you know, but actually the social levelling up is going to be needed post-COVID is even greater than it was pre-COVID. Mm. And we should be at the centre of that. So, you know, it's a long answer to your question, but I don't blame the current leadership. I think they have done a good job, but I think it takes a long time to build a reputation in those relationships. And we didn't have them. Mm. It feels like there's a new sort of more collaborative approach to leadership across the organizations that you mentioned and I don't know it feels it feels to me that although yeah we weren't in in the right place when the crisis hit to have the greatest impact that we wanted to have it feels like the crisis might have sort of put us on the right path for that yeah I think it has I mean there'll be some shakeout as well in infrastructure bodies no doubt because they're working with resources and you're right Carl in particular has led that you know, Carl and Vicky, I guess, is the kind of most significant profile figures uh, and the most significant profile organisations. But you're right, there has been a much more collaborative approach and that's so we can that can stay. And it's important. It's a, it's a challenge though, isn't it? Because I was asked on an interview once, why is there no single leadership? You know, there isn't, why isn't there a Caroline Fairbairn or a Francis O'Grady? And we don't have that in the sector. Now, you know, maybe Carl could be that, but yes, you need that collaborative approach and a common messaging and common points of, you know, different points of influence in order to actually create momentum. But you probably do need a single person who's they seen as the voice of the sector, who is regularly on TV, who is the commentator on these issues. Could be Vicky, uh, but probably more likely Carl is the role that mm-hmm. Carl should occupy. We'll have to see what we, in five years' time, whether we've got there, whether we are at the centre of the debate on levelling up. You know, key debates that should be there in a post-COVID, both health COVID anyway, a debate. Mm, I think the point about having a single voice for the sector, I know that I mean, that's what NCBO uh, is aiming to be, isn't it? But it's always had a real challenge about that because the sector is so diverse. And, you know, we talked about, well, you talked about the larger organisations being, you know, hugely affected by this and and the sort of changes that we're seeing at, at Cancer Research UK over the past few weeks are, like, quite upsetting. But I guess, I guess, you know, Cancer Research UK is a much bigger if I dare say it, much more powerful organisation than NCVO. You know, it's sort of lobbying clout is more, isn't it? So it's really hard for someone like NCVO to be the voice of the sector when it's trying to it's trying to incorporate the voices of, of your grantees and then, I don't know, Macmillan. I don't have an answer for it. You know, and, and you're right, and you, but you've got to pick on the common themes, um, the themes mm. that are common to all. 
and leveling up. You know, if you, if you if you look at leveling up in terms of health inequalities or or social inequalities or e- economic inequalities, that's as significant to the small charity that's around the corner from you in Sheffield dealing mm. with mental health is to cancer research. You know, because cancer. I mean, we've had poor cancer diagnosis during the crisis with people not presenting. You can bet your bottom dollar that people not presenting are those in the lowest economic groups in the poorer areas. So we're going to magnify some of those health inequalities. I think NCVO's job yeah. is to galvanise us around the issues that matter to all of us and bring that voice together. You're mm. right, Cancer Research UK, I mean, its comms team is probably bigger than the whole of NCVO. So, you know, its ability to do that. And of course, it needs to campaign on the issues that are relevant to Cancer Research UK. But that doesn't mean with the right kind of support, it wouldn't also lend itself to the stuff that's across the sector. And I think that's a role for potentially these infrastructure leaders to get us around the issues that are common to all of us, that unite us in a way. You know, the CBI, I mean, the CBI wouldn't expect to speak. I look at us, we're associated with Lloyd's Bank. We've got Antonio Horto Osorio, who's the chief executive of the bank. Well, it's Caroline Fairbin who comes on and talks about the sec- talks about the commercial sector. He will come on and talk about the economy, maybe. But, you know, she is the spokesperson. Francis O'Grady, I mean, look at how mm. r- riven and divisive the trade union sector is. Well, nobody's challenging. Francis O'Grady is the voice of the trade union sector, you know, yeah. including the tiny, the very left-wing u- unions and the, those that will be seen as, you know, liberals by, by some others. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's possible. It's possible. But it yeah. does require to unite around the common issues that you all can unite behind. And sure as hell, we need to now, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to move us on again. Um, I want to think about the trends that we might be able to anticipate and the kind of debates that we think might be had in the sector over the next couple of years. You know, you mentioned that it's very difficult to to look beyond what your organisation might look like in 12 months' time. Mm. And I'm sure you're aware of the sort of research that CAF has been doing around charitable giving and some of the stuff that's come out of that, you know, in terms of Debates that are going to be had around, for example, the role of the state versus philanthropy. I mean, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing mm. one, isn't it? But other things that you think are going to be debated over the coming years, or things that you sort of anticipate might happen over the coming years. I think the leveling up debate is real, uh, and it's it's politically important. As long as we have this government, mm. if they want a second term. They cannot have a position in three to four years' time where the North and people in the red, so-called previous Red Wall feel as though they've been neglected. That's a political imperative. So for me, that feels like it's going to be a theme, and we can ride that because actually the sector is strong in some of those areas. Yeah. Uh, and actually a lot of the issues that we care about, particularly inequality, whether it's economic or social or health inequality, mirror some of those problems. So I think that's pretty important. The other thing I think that I hope won't go away is the debate we're having about race um, and what that means for us as a sector. You know, some self-examination there, charity's so white and all the the thinking around that, what that means for us as a sector. But, I mean, that's important, but probably what's more more important, frankly, is what, what it means for people on the ground and the impact we might be able to have on people who are affected by that because they are black or Asian. Mm. Um, so, you know, I hope those are really important trends. I guess the third trend, I guess, will be, again, I hope we don't lose this. It's interesting. It's just this morning, actually, they've announced, I'm, I'm sure it's pitiful, but they've given um, an increase in salary to public sector employees. Well, that wouldn't have been in right. the table a year ago. And I think that debate about who matters and what matters uh, is, is important. Uh, you know, in terms of public sector workers. But public sector workers have been variously heroic and frankly not very heroic. You know, we've had the NHS, we've had social care. But actually we've had teachers too who, you know, I don't know if you've got young kids, but, you know, I'm not feeling particularly enamoured about teachers at the moment and not the support for our children. So it's going to be a bit mixed, a bit bit mixed that. And the danger in all of that is that in terms of the economic impact, we, 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 we mustn't forget that actually the people who were already disadvantaged even before COVID are now doubly disadvantaged. Mm. The chances of the organisations that we work with getting people into work have just become so much harder because people who are highly skilled are going to be out of work. You know, So who the hell is going to care about you know, a person who just left prison yesterday, who was abused as a child, who may have been an abuser, you know, who yeah. comes out of prison, wants a job, has absolutely no CV, but wants to rebuild their lives and the classic way in which people rebuild their lives is through employment. 
their chances of getting a job are now a hell of a lot harder than they were 12 months ago. Mm. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that, that problem in the economy is really going to impact at a micro and a macro level on kind of areas and places. Uh, and it will on people as well, particularly people who are going to be deeply disadvantaged. Mm. So, you know, and that, that is a sector, that is a, a sector-wide issue. And, you know, there is a political momentum behind dealing with that. And I think what we have is a knowledge and experience of some of those communities and some of those people and some of those issues that those people in power don't have. So some of the answers for those things might lie with us. So it isn't just for us. You know, the issue about campaigning has always been there's no point in just shouting, particularly this government. You know, you can shout as much as you want, but in the end, it'll say, get stuff. We've got an 80 majority. We don't really care. You go away. Yeah. Um, in the end, it has to be about recognizing, using the data, demonstrating there's a problem, but also being part of the answer. And the possible answer to this is this. And doing that in a much more intelligent way. Yes, arguments are won on emotion. And you know, the sector is good at winning the emotional arguments. But it has to then be followed through with the data. You know, the data, the evidence, not the Mickey Mouse stuff that we'll often do, the emotive stuff where we know this works because we feel it works. You know, where is the data that proves we have different ways to approach some of these issues at a micro and a macro level that will provide some of the answers that a government is going to struggle with? Mm. The big question overriding all of that will be, you know, is Sunak the new new Keynes? You know, I trained in economics. Is he the new Keynes? I'm reading back, read a fascinating book actually about uh, the depression. The first week of lockdown, I can buy a book about depression because I think that's where we, I think what we're, what we're like is much more like the 30s than we were, you know, in 2008 where we're heading now. And it's fascinating actually, all the history, the, the depression is really interesting. But what happened there was Keynes came. Um, and in the end, the whole the, we dropped off the gold standard. We rethought our economics. We actually started spending money. We realised that governments could borrow money. So is Richard Sunak a kind of new Keynes, or are we going to start locking down too soon, too quickly? And suddenly we 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 put the economy back into freefall again because there's no demand. And in the end, government has created demand. It's government. I mean, thank God he's done what he's done. I mean, we'd be in a hell of a position if he hadn't. But is that is that sustainable for another two three years to get us through this? Don't know. Big question. And we should be part of that debate too, you see. We need to be part of that macroeconomic debate, actually, encouraging Rishi Sunak to continue doing what he's doing for the next two to three years uh, because he's going to have to do. Because if suddenly he starts whacking up taxes uh, or, or reducing public expenditure, then, you know, we're all going to go into free fall again. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to start to wrap us up now. Sure. So I want to ask this final question that I ask to each of my guests, which is, is there a book person or film that has inspired your work i mean you've already mentioned three people earlier on and nev nev yeah <laughs> uh yeah um i did talk about those three children i work with and they were when i think about it, they were quite profound um there's a couple of doctors actually a couple of doctors i work with sight savers a guy called randy whitfield in america and a malawian called moses chirambo moses chirambo is now dead sadly and actually, sorry, it's a third doctor. I'm, I'm, I'm licensed here. Hannah Farr, she was a Gambian who had worked in Nigeria. And the three of them together pioneered the paramedic cataract surgery in Africa. And they will never be attributed for that. They're not attributed for that. But if I think about people who've made a profound impact on people's lives, you know, effectively in Africa, you've got uh, very few ophthalmologists. They all work in urban areas. So if you have a cataract and you live in rural Kenya or rural Tanzania or rural Burkina Faso, that's it. You're blind for life. Uh, in Britain, we would just have a cataract. So, you know, we just go and get uh, intraocular lenses. It would be easy, has standard. And between them, they pioneered paramedic cataract surgery. First of all, in East Africa, then in South Southern Africa, then in West Africa. It's now in Francophone Africa. And literally hundreds of thousands of people in Africa can see as a consequence of that. And it was a wonderful example of, if you like, a charity supporting innovation because it challenged the presumption that the only people who could do cataract surgery were doctors and trained barefoot paramedics to do cataract surgery and get better results than doctors got. They were all remarkable people. And Moses in particular was a fantastic guy, actually. He was a, a diminutive Malawian, fantastic sense of humor. Um, I traveled a lot in Malawi with him. And I went to um, <laughs> one of my first ventures. I'll show you, actually, I've got Blue Peter badge in here. Uh, one of the first things they did at Sightsavers was uh, they, they won the Blue Peter Appeal. And the Blue Peter Appeal raised money for mobile eye units. So I drove a Land Rover onto the Blue Peter studio. That's my claim to, claim to fame. But I also went with Moses Jurambo to Lake Malawi with a guy called Mark Curry, who was then the Blue Peter presenter. And I spent a month with Moses. It was my first month 
with sight savers and I trained to be a paramedic at the Longwood School for Health Sciences, um, living with, you know, 30 of them. They were all Malawians who were training to be, and they did a nine-month program. I did a month because my boss at Sight Savers thought it would be a good thing for me to go and do, living, you know, what was then a, a, a Longwe Hall of Residence, basically, which was pretty basic, living off Sadsa and the stuff that they ate, which was absolutely, fantastically formative again. And met Moses Chirambo and passed out watching him do a cataract surgery. <laughs> <laughs> But demonstrating it to, and you know, that's an extraordinary program, an extraordinary program, not talked about at all, but you know, quite extraordinary. And, uh, you know, and then that's what, that's what makes careers, you know, find fascinating people and just admire them. And the great thing as a chief exec is, you know, uh, used to think, and a leader, I was then field director Africa, was thinking, well, you know, I can't do anything these guys do, these guys and women do, but actually what I can do is make it easier for them to do it. And that's a wonderful thing to be able to do to be able yeah. to support people who are specialists who are really good at what they do to do what they do really well and to make a massive difference to people's lives. And I, you know, to me, that's the joy of being a chief exec is that you're in that privileged position of being able to do that. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. So, you know, the jack of all trades, master of absolutely nothing, but the ability to recognize people who are masters of things and, and help them do what they do mm-hmm. well. And Moses was one of them. Uh, a dear friend he became actually, and you know, sadly died uh, quite young. What an incredible story. Very incredible man, Moses Chiramba, yeah. Incredible story. And um, what, what an incredible like journey you've had as well. I wasn't expecting this chat to go like this at all, actually. But I've really, really enjoyed hearing about your start in particular, you know, your greengrocers and your social work at start and um, where, where life has taken you, like geographically as well. It's really interesting. So thank you. Thank you so much for sparing this time. Real pleasure, Beth. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Here are my key learnings from the chat. First of all, your leadership journey can start at any age. And in Paul's case, this was really young. This is something that really resonates with me as both of my parents were also self-employed and developing different relationships, managing really tricky situations and the 24-7 nature of it are certainly really formative. However, I don't think it is about just having early experience. Paul talks about the value of being curious and inquisitive as a chief executive and I feel that in many ways that's the kind of innate quality, if you like. We've all met people who are basically waiting for you to finish talking so that they can start talking. I think that's really, really difficult if that is if that person is in a leadership role or if you are managed by that person, for example. So the more that you can be in situations where you are learning and adapting to different situations and people, I think that's a really great basis for leadership. And finally, There's a real shift to more collaborative leadership across the sector and has really been brought to the fore in recent months as key organisations have really worked together and influenced government during the crisis. I'd recommend following people like Carl Wilding, Vicky Browning, Jane Ide, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, to name just a few, for example. Um, But keep an eye on what they're doing and how they communicate. They all seem very different to me, but clearly working together really brilliantly. I hope that you've enjoyed this and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.